Welcome back to the Network 5 Emergency Medicine Podcast. For our second part for the Upper GI Bleed talk that we're doing today, we've got Varun, who's one of our gastro ATs here at Westmead, presenting a paper on TEG, which is really quite interesting. Thromboelastography guided blood product transfusion in cirrhosis patients with variceal bleeding. It's a randomized control trial that's been conducted out of India and I'll throw over to you Varun to start us off. Thank you. I found this paper extremely fascinating, not because of the concept of TEG or using TEG in the emergency department or in a critical care setting, but more about the concept of coagulation in, in liver disease and, and kind of talking about that and using this article as a segue, in fact, to talk about coagulation in liver disease. And as mentioned, this paper came out of India, quite a large center in New Delhi, and it was published in the Journal of Clinical Gastroenterology in 2020. Coagulation abnormalities are common in cirrhotic patients. These include thrombocytopenia and a prolonged INR. But in cirrhotic patients, there's actually a state of balance between procoagulants and anticoagulants. And if anything, cirrhotic patients are likely to be prothrombotic. So conventional coagulation tests such as INR do not reflect bleeding risk in cirrhotics because the INR is only testing one half of the coagulation cascade, which is the extrinsic pathway. The issue is that there's conflicting recommendations from different societal bodies read the management of variceal bleeds. The AASLD do not recommend correcting INR with FFP or factor seven. The AASLD and Bovino criteria make no recommendation on platelet transfusions due to a lack of data, but the British Society guidelines and the American Society guidelines recommend FFP in significant coagulopathy in the context of chronic liver disease and platelet transfusions with patients who have acute variceal bleeds with platelets less than 50,000. The aim of this study was to assess the use of thromboelastography, and I'll say TEG from now on because it's a bit of a, a mouthful, in cirrhotic patients with acute variceal bleeding compared with conventional transfusion or correction of coagulopathy. For those that don't know, and in fact, it's our critical care colleagues that know more than us about what TEG is, but my kind of basic understanding is that it provides a global assessment of various factors promoting coagulation and anticoagulation, and it's well validated in trauma, liver transplant, and interventional radiology procedures. So why did I choose this article? As mentioned, it's not to push the concept of TEG for these patients, but it does seem like a good idea after reading this article. But as a, a way to open discussion about the complexities of coagulation in cirrhotic patients and to challenge the dogma that these patients are inherent bleeders or are natural bleeders. The patient population, it was an open label um, randomized control trial at one gastroenterology unit in New Delhi. The inclusion criteria were patients with known chronic liver disease with variceal bleed age between 18 to 65, the presence of coagulopathy with platelets less than 50,000 and or an INR greater than 1.8. But the exclusion criteria was fairly extensive. So they excluded patients with malignancy, DIC, a known previous coagulation disorder outside of cirrhosis, if they were on any antiplatelet agents or anticoagulants, pregnancies, blood transfusions before having the tag done, the presence of shock, which is a big exclusion criteria to mention, acute on chronic liver failure, which is another one to mention, AKI, paddock encephalopathy, and contraindication to endoscopy. So the intervention was a TEG-guided approach to transfusion of platelets and FFP. Packed red cells was used to aim for a hemoglobin above 70 to 80. And this was compared to the conventional arm, which is giving FFP if the INR is greater than 1.8. 
and three units of platelets if the platelets are less than 50,000. But then in terms of packed red cells, the, the aim was still the same to aim for a hemoglobin over 70 to 80. And in terms of the outcomes, the primary outcome was difference in FFP or platelets transfused before endoscopy. And the secondary outcome was rebleeding at day five, day 42, and mortality at six weeks. In terms of the screening randomization of this article, they assessed eligibility of 750 patients initially. As mentioned, they excluded a lot. So they excluded 687 patients. Um, it was interesting as to how many patients they actually excluded. So quite rightly, non-variceal bleeders were excluded, and that was 313 patients. Patients with platelets above 50 and an INR of less than 1.8 which was a fair amount as well with patient numbering 171 patients. That left 60 patients to randomize. 30 were allocated to the TED group and the other 30 were allocated to the conventional transfusion group. Only one in each group were lost to follow-up. All 30 were analyzed on both sides. And looking at the baseline demographic, clinical and lab characteristics of randomized patients, it's interesting that amongst 30 patients in the TED group versus conventional group, it was quite well balanced between the two groups in terms of characteristics. Characteristics meaning things like age, sex, the, the MEL score, the child pew score, and the etiology of the cirrhosis. It almost seems that it's so balanced that it's almost kind of suspicious. Overall, it's a fairly balanced group. The majority of patients have alcohol-related chronic liver disease, which would be quite reflective of our hospital population in terms of the types of variceal bleeders that we see as the etiology of the cause of the chronic liver disease. In terms of endoscopic findings, it was almost equal in terms of endoscopic findings. So there were 25 in the TED group that had esophageal varices versus 26 in the conventional group. Of note, there was no patients in the TED group that had gastric varices, and the mean time to endoscopy was roughly about six hours in both groups and was quite equal. In terms of the results, there was no difference in the amount of packed red cells which were given. However, there was a significant reduction in the amount of FFP and platelets given, and this was clinically and statistically significant. In terms of FFP, only four patients in the TEG group were given FFP, and 14 patients in the conventional transfusion group were given FFP. Stark difference from 13% to 46.7%. In terms of platelets infused, only three patients or 10% had platelets infused in the TEG group, compared to 21 patients in the conventional transfusion group, which was 70% of patients who received platelets. And in terms of secondary outcomes, so re-bleeding at day five was very similar between the TED group versus the conventional group. So it was 3.3% versus 13.3% and wasn't statistically significant. Re-bleeding at day 42 was significantly less in the TED group, which was 10% versus conventional, which was 36.7% with a p-value of 0.012. However, mortality was similar at six weeks between TEG versus conventional groups. So that's 13.3% versus 26.7%. However, the study wasn't really powered to properly assess this. Cause of death was sepsis, as Tim's mentioned before, progressive liver failure and re-bleeding. An interesting side note, which wasn't technically a secondary outcome, only one patient in the conventional group had a transfusion reaction, so that's 3.5%. And obviously, there was no transfusion reactions in the TED group. So my overall thoughts about this study is that excessive blood products could increase portal pressure. And that could translate into increased re-bleeding risk in some of these patients. TEG could potentially be the way forward to direct judicious use of transfusions in patients in the ED with variceal bleeding. There were a few weaknesses that 
deserve mention in this study. My main issue in this study is that fibrinogen wasn't included in the outcomes. And fibrinogen is a, a significant component of the coagulation cascade. And TEG is an appropriate test to look for whether there's issues with fibrinolysis. And there wasn't a reason as to why fibrinogen was not included in their assessment. Another issue is that the inclusion criteria was extremely strict. It excluded patients who were hypotensive and who were in shock. It also excluded patients who had acute on chronic liver failure, who are usually the patients who are most unwell. The study was done in one center and hence is not generalizable to all centers around the world. But to counter that point, looking at the etiology of chronic liver disease in the patient cohort, it's very similar to what we would see here. Another weakness was there wasn't enough power to assess mortality, which would have been interesting to, to see. Overall, I think this was a really interesting study because it's extremely thought-provoking as to how we approach these patients and whether we should have a judicious approach to trying to correct these patients' coagulopathy. What would this mean for practice on a local scale? I guess this is a question to you guys and my critical care colleagues is, is this something that could be potentially used and is there any value in the emergency department? Who can interpret these TEG values? Is it fairly simple? Should clinicians, including ourselves, you know, be able to interpret TEG results, not just critical care staff? Yeah, those are the two questions that I had to uh, propose to you guys. Thanks, Varen. That was a really good summary. Definitely keen to talk more about TEG in one sec, but I actually had a few thoughts on this paper. It was very interesting that they excluded the shocked patients, particularly because shock, you know, in the other settings in which we use tags such as trauma is certainly not a contraindication. And in fact, it's the shocked patients where I want to use the tag to find out what I should be giving them. To address your point, it's certainly something that I think we need to progressively be more aware of in the emergency department. It's becoming more and more prominent, I think, and critical, particularly our anesthetic and ICU colleagues tend to use it quite routinely. The only limiting factor in the ED tends to be that if someone starts hosing blood, regardless of what orifice they're hosing from, usually they need to leave the ED fairly promptly. Um, and so as a result of that, the tag can sometimes have limited yield. Having said that, in I think this particular use of the tag shows a lot of promise. And, you know, there are sort of mentions of potential utility and other indications such as snake bite as another potential example. I did want to question though the endpoint in this paper and I guess in particular the way that they've set up their analysis. They've purported to use this study to say the TEG is allowing us to use less blood products and that certainly appears to be true in the context of the use of platelets by allowing us to overcome our traditional platelet transfusion target of greater than 50 in patients who are bleeding. But I noticed that they seem to sort of artificially set up a false dichotomy in the amount of FFP that is used between the two groups. As you mentioned, there's really not a whole lot of evidence for transfusing FFP routinely in patients who have liver cirrhosis or varices. By recruiting a population in which the INR was all greater than 1.8. And then by routinely giving those patients FFP and then comparing it to the patients who had the TEG who didn't receive the FFP because that was not a routine thing other than a couple of patients that, who evidently needed it from the TEG parameters, they've kind of created the outcome that they set out to look for and to begin with. And so in that context, by showing that mortality was equivalent or in fact slightly better in the TEG population, they might have demonstrated that limited transfusion is actually a better strategy, but I don't think they actually demonstrate any benefit from the TEG. 
because the tech was not actually the thing being tested in that situation. I think your comment about portal pressures was certainly something that was interesting for me in reading this. Normally, my instinct is to throw the kitchen sink at a varicell bleeder. And so it was very interesting for me as a point to note, if you're giving someone routine FFP without actually assessing their coagulation status, you may actually be increasing their portal pressure and rendering them prone to bleeding more and having worse outcomes. And that was actually interesting when you looked at this paper, they reflected that the INRs were improving, but all of the mortality signal was worse, even though it was not statistically significant. And the 40-day re-bleeding risk was also worse. On that note, I think it would be interesting for you guys if we could talk a little bit about what the actual pathogenesis is of variceal bleeding. What's the underlying process that is contributing to variceal bleeding? From what you're saying, it doesn't sound like it's the coagulation disturbance. So taking it back a bit, with patients who have cirrhosis, they've got fibrosis, right? So they've got fibrosis, they've got a very fibrotic liver. What happens is when you're draining the portal vein into the liver, got a fibrotic liver where there's increased pressure that needs to get through the liver in order to enter systemic circulation when it enters the IVC. With that increased portal pressure, that pressure goes to other places, which are part of portal circulation. One of the places is you know, the gastroesophageal junction, and that's how you get esophageal varices. It's essentially a consequence of a buildup of portal pressure that causes varices to form. Over a period of time, if that pressure persists and increases, those varices can get larger. There's also gastric varices as well. Some people can also get rectal varices too. So as the portal pressure increases, it gets to a tipping point where the vessel itself can't expand anymore. And then when that occurs, then bleeding occurs. And it's that point that something needs to be done. Yeah, thank you. So what sort of factors would cause an acute rise in portal pressure to potentially contribute to a bleed? Or is it just that these vessels are so friable to begin with that it's a ticking time bomb? That could be one aspect. The second aspect could be any other reason for decompensation. So you know, there could be an underlying infective process, you know, not taking medications. There could be increased salt um, in their diet. There's multiple things that can increase portal pressure. There's no specific thing per se, but it comes to a point where it just hits that tipping point and they start bleeding. Really, really interesting for me because it completely changed my understanding of variceal bleeding. So very good for my exam study. I'm glad I can be of assistance. So it looked to me like basically they've excluded anyone that they couldn't ethically randomise to make sure that they could continue to do an RCT. I guess that raises the question then, how relevant are the results that they obtain because often these patients are unstable, they are shocked, they do meet several of the criteria that they've excluded in the study. Do you think that they might have been better off doing a slightly lower down on the ladder study to get a bigger sample population and maybe some more extractable results to be relevant to more of the population? Yeah, I think that's an extremely fair point. But I think in terms of your question, it makes sense to validate HEG as uh, instrument to use in these patients. From our perspective, I think this paper is just trying to give us an overview as to the concept of whether we should be giving FFP or platelets in general, if that makes sense. It's like, you know, should we really be giving FFP or platelets? That to me is what hits home about this specific paper to us as gastroenterology department and team. But coming to your point, I think if you really wanted to use TEG as a way to validate it in this patient population, it would make sense to increase the numbers and also increase the power of the study to actually show that there's a mortality benefit. Conversely, if they were to make a paper along those lines, then the criticism would be, oh, you know, why couldn't this be an RCT? 
Like that would be the flip. It's just hard to say how to approach the methodology in terms of trying to answer that question. The shocked patient particularly is the one that should go in, but they've been completely yeah. left out. I think that was potentially a missed opportunity, unfortunately. I agree with you, Varen. As far as I could see that there was a few different guidelines. Some of them say use some FFP, others say don't. Interestingly, the cutoff in some of the guidelines was an INR of 1.5. In this paper, they've used 1.8. So it, it certainly validates that we should not rush to transfusing. In the shocked patient, what would your approach be? So for me, and I think my experience come managing this uh, patients in hemorrhagic shock coming from um, the time I worked in a cardiothoracic ICU, nothing to do with the gastro, but they also were bleeding post-operatively. And we use Rotem, which is similar to TAG all the time. And what my experience was that uh, we have the patients that have been hosing the blood out through the chest drains. We would do the Rotem. We would, you know, find what components need to be replaced call the cardiothoracic surgeons and say, look, we've replaced, that's all looking good. And then they say, give more platelets, <laughs> give more pack cells, or, you know, give another three units of FFP. So I find this testing really shocked and unwell patients is really not good enough to use because when your patient is crushing in front of you, even of all your readings saying you've transfused enough, you will be doing things. So I think this is only good enough for patients that are, more or less stable at some degree and you know you have time to say transfuse this or not transfuse these products and wait and see at the reaction but i think shock patients you either need to go to theater and stop the bleeding or you continue resuscitating and aiming for some of the parameters hemodynamic uh, that's my experience so i think how often are you going to be doing this test who is going to be reading it i'm pretty sure not everybody trained in in interpreting tag even in our department and just relying on that reading when somebody's blood pressure is 50 is not going to be good enough for me that I think really reflects why, particularly in the emergency medicine setting, TAG can be somewhat limited in the applications that have been explored so far, but maybe we need to widen the population slightly. And certainly anecdotally, from what I'm aware, the mortality benefit from TAG hasn't been demonstrated yet. Correct me if I'm wrong, Oksana. More the potential benefit in terms of limiting the amount of products that you're using. Tim, did you have a mm, comment? Good summary, Varen. Loved your work. I agree with Varen just with the study quickly that the endpoints might be gripe as well like yeah it's just they're using a like a surrogate endpoint of just we're using less products and what you really want as a clinician is those hard outcomes like mortality re-bleeding hospitalization stay etc cetera, etc cetera. so it's really unfortunate they weren't powered enough to get that i agree with Aaron. again what this is a great stepping stone to this paper is it's it's just it's highlighting how interesting liver patients are and how they break a lot of the rules around physiology. They've got really complex physiology, as Varen sort of alluded to, because the whole crux of liver disease, it's that portal hypertension. It drives everything. It's the whole problem. And varices is one downstream component of that. They form collateral vessels to shunt away from the liver. The other thing is too, they we know that liver patients run in this systemic sort of constant inflammatory state. We know it's the ongoing liver damage, the bacterial translocation, we know that they get, they're always sort of in this really pro-inflammatory state. So when you, as a consequence of that, physiologically, you vasodilate and it's why they get this massive dilatation of all their splanchic vessels. So they always run at this really low peripheral vascular resistance, which is why when you get really decomp cirrhotic child C category where they've got ascites and things, they're now in this situation where they're always running with this really low blood pressure. They're often almost borderline tachycardic. 
just physiologically. And that's to do with this systemic inflammatory response. There's still so much more research going into this because it is a really fascinating topic in, in cirrhosis physiology and what drives portal hypertension. I think the interesting thing with varices is it is a portovenous circulation. So it's they're not actually hosing from an artery per se. And that's what really complicates things for these patients is unlike a lot of other bleeding where you're arterially bleeding and you're losing intravascular volume, if you keep pouring in volume into these patients, their portal pressures just go up and up and up and up. And you actually start to just drive the bleeding more through these varices. And a good case in point is that is often when you get these patients and they've, they've had hematemesis, they come in really unstable or they are actively bleeding in theatre and then they start dropping their blood pressure more, the varices stop. I mean, I know everyone says if bleeding will always stop if you don't have blood pressure, but like they're not catastrophically hypotensive. They're just, they are slightly more hypertensive than their baseline and the bleeding actually slows and settles because they've lost that drive in their portal pressures. They present so many challenges to patients. So one is that issue of portal pressure and how much volume, how much do you resuscitate this patient's, how much product do you put in? And exactly what Varen pointed out at the start, their coagulation profile is really complex. They're not making coagulation factors, but they're also not making the other factors. One of the things we mentioned, you were talking about precipitants of variceal bleeding. If they have a really sudden bleed and it's come out of nowhere and they're actually normally not very decompensated, one of the things we always check is they haven't had a portal vein thrombus because that will very rapidly push your portal pressures up. So you'll, you'll have this cirrhotic in front of you who's got an INR of two, Billy of say 70 and like low platelet count from their portal hypertension, yet they have a portal vein thrombus. And you're like, but if they're on warfarin with an INR of two, how have they clotted? And that's exactly the idea is that the INR we really know now is not a reflection of their coagulation state. It's purely a reflection of their liver function. So the reason we're always so obsessed to know what their INR is, is it very much tells us what's their synthetic function, how severely decompensated is their liver. But we know it just doesn't give us a good indication of their state. The idea with TEG conceptually is that we like the idea that it measures fibrinogen, which we know is low in liver disease because it's made by the liver. And then at the same time, we know platelets are a big problem because of their portal hypertension. So the idea of a rotum or TEG is that it, we know it does measure those things a lot better, which is what sort of has been the attraction of it. But that's the real challenge of these patients is how do we measure their coagulation state? Or even broadly, what is their coagulation state? Are they a bleeder? Are they a clotter? And then with that, how much volume do we give these patients? Do we approach them like a trauma and give them MTP and give them heaps of volume? Or are they the more permissive hypertension? If they're, they're just a really interesting space. And I agree with this study. The difficulty is where you're reaching for everything is the really sick ones. And the problem with that is, one, it's not been studied, but two, these are the additional challenges with that really sick patient in front of you is you've got this patient who's just got very different physiology to a lot of other things. They're, they're a really interesting group of patients. That also reflects another strange exclusion in this paper, which was actually excluding people who had the INR that was a bit lower. Because one of the interesting things that we know about TEG is that it actually measures function of your coagulation factors and your platelets rather than the pure number. If you assess the platelet function of a handful of different people who have the same platelet count, you would find that they clot differently. And there's more than simply the number that determines how well your platelets are working. 
And so I think it would have been actually interesting if they'd included just a broad population of liver cirrhotic patients who came in with variceal bleeding, as opposed to just the people who had the abnormal numbers, because they may have found that actually, even though some of the platelet count was 75, or maybe the INR was 1.2, maybe they actually still needed the transfusions as opposed to have the more deranged numbers. In the acute setting, your blood parameters are not particularly accurate. So for example, in someone who's acutely bleeding, you cannot rely on a hemoglobin level because the hemoglobin being a concentration, if you haven't given them adequate volume to allow that concentration to equilibrate, then the hemoglobin may not change. You know, The same can be true of a number of hematologic parameters. And so perhaps relying on them is a fault of the study to begin with. On that note, I think it would be useful for us to go over a little bit of how TEG works. TEG's essentially a point of care test used in critical care settings. So routinely now used in the emergency department and particularly in anesthetics. Basically, it takes a small sample of blood, pops it into a machine and runs a test that spits out a graph that should look like a wine glass and will give you a bunch of values that will end up on your EMR. And those values and the shape of the graph that is created give an indication of clot formation and clot breakdown essentially. And once you've got those bits of information, you can use the numbers and the shape of the graph to interpret what factors are deficient and how to guide your transfusion of the patient. The thing that I love about TEG is that it's actually in certain ways a more intuitive and more direct assessment of coagulation. What's actually happening when you put the vial of blood into this machine is that it then spins a wire in the middle of the pool of blood and leads to a clot forming on that and then evaluates the clot formation in terms of its characteristics. It spits out a few different numbers. So I've got my life in the fast lane cheat sheet here to help me. Essentially, to begin with, the first question is how long is it going to take to form a clot? And so that's the R time. And so in simple terms, the time it takes to form a clot is dependent on your clotting factors. And so if that time takes a long time, then you need to replace clotting factors. It then looks at the kinetics of the clot and the extent of the clot in terms of the time it takes to reach the maximum amplitude. When you think about it, the thing that you need to form a good solid amplitude of a clot is fibrinogen. And so when those things are inadequate, you need to replace fibrinogen. The maximal amplitude of the clot is another important thing. And what do you need to have a nice chunky clot? You need platelets. That tells us the platelet function, whether platelets need to be replaced. It is also uh, somewhat dependent on fibrinogen as well. And then the final thing that is one of the slower properties of TEG is that what the clot lysis is of that clot after 30 minutes. And if that is excessive, then you probably know that you've got excessive fibrinolysis and therefore you need to give something like TXA to prevent fibrinolysis. As convoluted as it is, and I'm sure there's much more detailed explanations that can be provided, but that's it's just a direct assessment of is the clot forming? How big is it? And what are we missing in forming that clot you know, adequately? I like TEG trace, but I always find that whenever I utilize it, particularly in a trauma setting, because that's where we do most of it, the result comes back. If they're really, truly sick, they're properly sick, they properly need a TEG. The result comes back when they're already in theaters, they've finished their intervention. I'm not sold on the utility of it in ED, unless we're planning on having our EDs get even more crowded than they are, and we're going to be resuscitating people for prolonged periods. You know, I think the notion of an MTP as being a, a good distribution of products to give people is probably just more straightforward than trying to worry about catching up with products. But, you know, maybe I'm wrong. I completely agree. And much though I'm excited for the 
infiltration of endoscopy into ED so I can do my scope myself to see if there's a variceal bleeder. I think that by and large, these patients, when they start hosing, need to leave as quickly as possible. One interesting thing about TEG though, and perhaps the part of the reason that we should think about using it more is that most of these numbers actually come back within 10 minutes. And by and large, even in the most optimal situation, the time that it takes for a patient to go from identified in the ED to you know, appropriately resuscitated, or at least having a resuscitation initiated, having the people organized and getting everyone upstairs, that tends to be longer than 10 minutes. So I think it's something that has a lot of potential. And I guess the other space is these patients who are in that gray zone. So the patients who have possibly disturbed coagulation, but aren't necessarily acutely hemorrhaging. What do we give them? How do we make sure that they're not going to decompensate? And that's that's a really interesting use of this paper. I'd love to talk about variceal bleeding more generally. Oksana, you've got a hemorrhaging variceal bleeder patient in the ED, 45. He was still drinking this morning. What are our key emergency priorities in managing this patient? For us in the emergency department, it's always going to be airway breathing circulation. It doesn't matter what they come in with, it's always going to be the same. These people need early airways because unfortunately bleeding a lot also predisposes them to then occluding their airways, aspirating, and it's a lot harder to establish it the longer we wait. We need to make sure that we can adequately oxygenate and ventilate this patient. And of course, the, the circulation, it's a hemorrhage control and the resuscitation at the same time. And that's where, you know, there's depends of what we have available and who we have available. Those are the ones that need to go as soon as possible. They're the patients that need to have a scope as soon as possible, but they're also the patients that we need to resuscitate and get them more or less stable prior to them leaving the department. Nobody will be scoping person like this without the airway protection. And hence, it's always the same management in emergency your airway breathing circulation, your resuscitation of this patient based on pathology and the early scores is my key points. You've mentioned that establishing the airway is really important in these patients. Modern critical care adage is resuscitate before you intubate. How are you optimizing this person before you go to put that tube in? Or are you just going to crack on with it knowing that they need the definitive tension? So I think things can get simultaneously for these patients. I can't imagine me waiting with some somebody who is not oxygenating and occluding airways till I get their blood pressure up because ultimately I need for them to breathe. And if I can't deliver that, it doesn't matter what blood pressures I have. They will arrest regardless. If you still have time, if the airways is still patent, it's of course, beneficial if we can resuscitate them prior to induction and prior to the tube going in. However, if we're not at that point, we just acknowledge that that's going to be a difficult intubation. There's a high risk of this patient arresting and we have to move on regardless. There will be a team of doctors who will be resuscitating this patient and some of them could be involved more in uh, circulation and some of them will be establishing airways. I can't say there is uh, one rule for all these patients. It depends on each case, but unfortunately, it's always, always airway breathing circulation. I cannot ignore patient breathing problems and concentrate on stopping the hemorrhage if I have no airways. Are there other medical treatment options that have been shown to benefit? So we would always say give them the dilating agent, being that of terlipressin or octreotide. We know that reduces portal pressures and will reduce that drive behind 
for varics. We always give PPI infusion as well. They may not have a variceal bleed, even though they're estrotic, they could just have an ulcer or something else. So we would always advocate PPI infusion, antibiotics, antibiotics, antibiotics are very, very important as we mentioned earlier. If they're having hematemesis, we always love if we could get erythromycin or something in pretty early to act as rapid gastric emptying because that will just help us a lot when we actually get the scope in. We don't have a stomach full of blood that we have to deal with. And then with the ABC, just some little interesting things. If the patient has a variceal bleed and they are altered GCS or obtunded, they're most likely encephalopathic. That's a very good clue. They're having a massive bleed because what's probably driving their encephalopathy is the massive load of blood in their gut. And with a consequence of that, all the protein, everything that's getting absorbed. So if patients having a massive variceal bleed, often they do present loridly encephalopathic. So that's just a good little thing to think of if they are really a, a tundid or altered GCS, bear that in mind, it's probably a big bleed. And then with the resuscitation, it's just that thing I was saying of just bearing in the back of your minds of what their physiology is, that often they probably are running a lower blood pressure and maybe rather than the number looking at how they're perfusing, like looking at more solid clinical endpoints rather than just the, what their systolic blood pressure is and what that number is actually doing to the patient. So we're not trying to generate this number that they may not ever be at when they're in the community. And then knowing that when that INR comes back, that does not equal an INR of someone on warfarin. Um, it's very different. They're sick. They're very sick. They've got decompensated liver disease. It's not the same as someone who's got gastric ulcer that's bleeding and they're on warfarin with an INR of two. That's very different. Just one extra point to mention is after we do endoscopy, we often keep patients on an IV PPI, mainly because if we band, the esophageal bands can ulcerate and we try and prevent ulceration because you can also get like a big bleed two or three days after we banded. Um, so we try and prevent that by continuing on with IV PPIs. Tell me, Ram, what's the data around PPIs and reducing banding ulcers? Not a whole lot of data. <laughs> Maybe we can do a paper on it. <laughs> Is there an ideal timing you're aiming to get that erythromycin in before the scope? Can you give it too early and then kind of that blood's reaccumulated or do you, in that case, do you just give it again? In an yeah. ideal world, when would you want yeah. to get that erythromycin? And what sort of dose are you giving? Maybe it's 200 is the dose. And then usually if, if we're going to theatre in the next hour, I think it's will still be beneficial. I would just say give it because we know that logistically often you're like erythromycin and people go, erythromycin? We never give it. Where's erythromycin? And they're like running up, you know, like it just sourcing it, getting it, giving it often just takes time. So we'll always just say, just, just give it. So when you can get it and it's going in, we're never going to not scope them because, oh, you haven't given the erythromycin. We're going to wait. And like that will never happen. It's just, it's very helpful. And and also knowing the other thing you've got up your sleeve is sense darken. So if you've got a patient who's just not responding to resuscitation, they are crash, crash, crashing. They're a cirrhotic. They've probably got a variceal bleed. You can do that. The other prokinetic to think of is metoclopramide. But erythromycin is much better. Much better. It, yeah. yeah. The antibiotics thing, I don't think we can emphasize that enough, is the single intervention that has demonstrated the most mortality benefit in patients with variceal bleeding, high risk of bacterial translocation. And so this is often the ultimate cause of mortality in these patients. Oksana, what are your thoughts about the Sengstark and Blakemore tube? Well, when they look like they're not for this world, <laughs> go for it. We have put them in ICU as well, because what very often happens, they go to scope, they bend what they could see in that whole bunch of, you know, bloody clotty mess. And they come to ICU and they bleed more and they re-bleed and then they crush like there is no tomorrow and that balloon goes in. I 100% agree. And if you're in that situation, which is not your everyday patient, you're literally 
trying to put everything you can for that person to not bleed out. And, and very often, there's no point going for a second scope straight away. If they already went and they've done what they can and they're still bleeding like this, um, that will be just, as you said, temporizing measure for that bleeding maybe to tamponate itself at some point and for them to have another look once they're more stable. On that note, I think similar to other hero measures, not a whole lot of evidence to my knowledge. Is that fair to say? And possibly a risk of harm? Look, this is, as I said, not every patient gets it. The ones that gets it, believe me, it's either this or death. So I can't imagine them really being harmed that much if they're on the brink of dying. For context, most of my colleagues have never put one in. So we don't do it. Like it really is a last ditch. You mentioned harm. The main thing is we always inflate the gastric balloon. So if you inflate the esophageal balloon, you can cause necrosis of the esophagus. So all you do is you put it down when you're in the stomach, you inflate the gastric balloon and then you just pull back until it's, because what you actually want is you want the tamponade sort of on the COJ slash cardia of the stomach. That because it's the, the pressure is behind the varices. It's not coming from proximal down to the COJ pressure is actually behind. So like when we band, we band as close to the COJ as on the COJ as possible because that's where the pressure is coming up from. So you inflate the gastric balloon and then pull back to your tamponade. That's the way to do it. That you're doing it that way, you're not going to be causing the risks of the esophageal balloon. One final question: octreotide versus terlipressin versus neither. As far as I'm aware, there's no paper that has done a real proper head-to-head and shown a significant difference between the two. One thing to be aware of terlipressin is that it can cause like coronary vasospasm. So there's increased risk of having cardiac events. There's also increased risk of pleural effusions as well. Yeah, I think overall it's essentially a judgment call as to which one you'd use. But there is a push lately of using more terlipressin octreotide. Usually it's protocol driven. Usually it's to do with the hospital, what's on the lamb. Nearly all these things have protocol. Some hospitals I've worked, it's Turley. Others, they use octreotide just to give context. That was a really interesting discussion. Baron, do you want to wrap up with some take-home points? I only have one take-home point. I'll keep it simple. So INR is not reflective of bleeding risk in chronic liver disease. That's my main take-home point from this article. So thanks for that, Varun. Um, it was really, really stimulating discussion. Throw over to Oksana, one of our ED staff specialists here at Westmead, to carry us through this interlude. So as I've been already introduced, uh, my name is Oksana. I'm one of the staff specialists here. Um, I've been working in Westmead since 2007 and done all my training here. And the last seven years, I've been a consultant in the emergency department. I love it. Absolutely love it. The hectic environment, new cases, meeting new people. That just what I can't see myself living without. But what I want to share with our listeners today is my journey to that point. I was born and raised in Ukraine. I went to medical school there, finished it when I was 23 and came here. Ukraine is a beautiful country and where I live, it's a, or used to live, it's a small town called Chernovce, right in the border with Romania, uh, not too far away where Dracula used to uh, have his castle. It has amazing culture. And the reason why it has it, we used to be all kinds of other countries. Uh, we used to be part of uh, Austria, part of Hungary, part 
part of Poland, always somebody invaded us. And that's where we got our very mixed culture that I absolutely adore. And when I came here and people would ask me where I'm from, I'd say Ukraine. And the first thing most of them would say, oh, that's where Chernobyl blew up. And to me, it was like, oh my God, this is horrible thing to be known for. And I couldn't imagine being known for anything worse than this. But 20 years down the track, here we go. We succeeded in being known for even worse than Chernobyl blow up, which is absolutely heartbreaking for me because still my family and my friends are in there and they're going through a very difficult time. And that's a topic for a different podcast. Uh, what I want though, just to today concentrate on sort of my journey to get to this emergency medicine and the lessons that I've learned during it. So when I came here, it was to say year 2000, I was literally just finished my university and had to do the AMC exam. I realized to confirm or uh, to register again in Australia. I've studied so hard for about like a year and a half, had to learn English because it's not our second language in Ukraine and set the AMC exam and failed it and failed it. And I think for me, it was at that point in my life, I literally thought that's the end of it. What will I do? I can't do anything but the medicine. Uh, I have no other profession. Do I keep sitting this exam or do I just give up and do something else? And I think reflecting on it now, um, I have uh, decided to do a different degree, work in a different area, probably more related to medicine, but not medicine. Uh, and it took me about the seven years of detour before I realized that is not what I want to do. I'm working as a scientist in a blood, ba blood bank. Uh, it was the most boring job ever. <laughs> and I said, it can't be that. I can't spend my life like this. I need to go back. But also the seven years, I met some of my best friends in the university. I met quite a lot of inspirational teachers. I started the family and I had some time to spend with my children at that time, uh, because really the university doing a medical science after medicine was very easy. And uh, realized seven years down the track that uh, who I am and what I want to do. I said the second time exam, passed it easily, went into the emergency training. And I think this is where I realized I love this job. I love this excitement. I love this hectic life and, uh, and the new experience every day where walking into a department, you never know how it's going to, how your day will end up. But what I'm trying to bring is that in our lives, and you probably all can relate, we have the step backs where something happened, not the way you want it to happen. And that's not a bad thing reflecting on it now. This failure of this exam let me reassess what I am like, what I like in the life and meet some of the most amazing people. It let me spend more time with my kids, get prepared a lot better. What I'm trying to bring to our listeners as a point is that step backs are okay. And sometimes really step backs is the only way to move forward. And this is what I want to talk to you about. So that's the end of uh, part two of our upper GI bleeding episode. Part three, we're talking about pantoprazole and the ins and outs of whether it does anything useful for an emergency patient with GI bleeding. In the meantime, if you guys have any feedback, comments, want to get involved, we'd love to hear from you on Westmead ED Journal Club at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. Yeah, it was love, I never had to tell you up above, they're singing for the time.